Inside, it's comfortable. Inside a house, inside a family, inside a routine. But what if we widen our view beyond the fence across the street? Outside, we find people struggling with loneliness, poverty, families that don't look like ours, or without a safe family at all. Jesus didn't call us to live by our neighbors. He called us to love our neighbors. Uh, good morning, everybody. Am, am I on? Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me again. It's, uh, it's always good to be back at Mosaic. Um, I love what you guys are doing here. I'm always afraid. I, I speak at a couple of different churches. I'm always afraid I'm going to come up and be the guy you know, the, the, the um, rock star who says, welcome to Minneapolis, and he's in Chicago. Uh, like, hey, it's so great to be at uh, First Baptist this morning. No. Anyway, um, uh, my praise and adulation to you for being at the early service on Daylight Savings Spring Forward, that's uh, virtuous. And the best part about it is that you get to be here at 9.55 when people show up for the 9 o'clock service and go, boo! Uh, or um, welcome, whichever, whichever kind of person you happen to be. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm grateful to be here and hate this text that I've been um, assigned to preach. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, thanks, Eric. I, I, I love it. I love it. I did this too. When I was a full-time pastor, I did the same thing. I was like, huh, Luke 6, 17, 26. That feels like a good Sunday to have a guest speaker and uh, invite somebody else in. So, uh, you know what? I'll take it. So, um, I, uh, I recently re-entered the world of Twitter, which, uh, you know, might have been a mistake. But I, uh, I, I've had an account. Do, do people have Twitter accounts? A few? Eh. I've had an account forever, but I've never really used it. And uh, this fall has become more and more apparent that um, our, uh, our president and, and lots of political pundits now were going to be really using this platform to be part of the national dialogue. I kind of felt like, man, I probably need to get back on there and follow some people and, and uh, keep my ear on that. And of course, since I did that, I realized that Twitter, um, you know, the best stuff on Twitter doesn't actually come from Donald Trump. Uh, amazingly enough, it comes from places like uh, Shower Thoughts. I'm, I'm going to have a couple of slides up here. Uh, Shower Thoughts, who recently said, I'd like to see a slow motion video of earphones getting tangled in a pocket because I just don't believe it sometimes. <laughs> Which I just thought was so insightful and rang very true to me. Uh, or from feeds like Bill Crapsberg, uh, who recently tweeted, imagine someone you respected played the flute. <laughs> Which I'm really sorry if you play the flute. I'm, I, I apologize. I just thought that was amazing. Uh, like I couldn't help imagining Steve Jobs playing the flute, or Tom Brady playing the flute, and then that got me thinking about Ron Burgundy playing the jazz flute, and uh, anyway. But once in a while, a tweet comes along and absolutely grabs you by the shirt collar and demands that you pay attention. And that happened for me with this one from David Slack. He said, remember sitting in history thinking, if I was alive then, I would have, you're alive now, 
Whatever you're doing is what you would have done. That tweet floored me. It made me start thinking through, well, I would have stood up to the Nazis, or I would have let Rosa Parks sit wherever she wanted to sit, or I would have been on the side of the people helping the little girl get into the the schoolroom. No, probably not. Whatever you're doing is probably what you would have done. You probably would have... I'm talking to myself now. You, You probably would have just done your suburban white dude thing and hoped that people didn't make too much trouble. And now, of course, you know, Slack here was talking about engaging the, the Trump administration and his policies, which I don't really care if you're pro or anti-Trump or, or indifferent. The idea applies to whenever history repeats itself, as it always inevitably does. It made me think a lot about um, the Old Testament narratives. As I read the Old Testament narratives, I always watch how the people, the people of God complain and how they, I watch their discontentness and their ungratefulness for what God has done and doubting whether it was really even God who brought them out of Egypt. Like maybe this was a big mistake, we should go back, they had meat there. And, and doubting whether God really cared about him, doubting whether he was in control, doubting whether he even really loved him. And it's hard not to read those narratives. Tell me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm alone. But it's hard not to read those narratives and think, if I would have been there, I would have been, you know, I would have been the voice of reason. I would have been the guy who was saying, like, are you all crazy? Of course God brought us out, out of Egypt. Do you remember what he did? Do you remember the plagues? Do you remember the pillar of fire? Do you remember the Red Sea splitting in two? Of course he's in control. Of course he loves us. Of course he wants what's good for us. Have you completely forgotten all the ways he showed up and loved us and, and rescued us again and again? Like, I'd like to think I'd be that guy. Until... I run into circumstances in my own life where things are not going the way that I planned or I'm discontent or God seems silent or God seems distant and I I question even in anger sometimes what he's doing. And I realize I'm alive now. What I'm doing is probably what I would have done. That tweet just stopped me in my tracks. I had to sit down and just, just think on that. Think about whether I really am who I like to think I am, about whether I'm really doing the kinds of things that a person, the kind of person I think I am would do. So it's a little bit of a sucker punch in the conscience. Uh, and of course, the all-time master of the sucker punch in the conscience is Jesus. So I'd like to take a look at how he does this in our text this morning. This is a really, really difficult text, especially in our context. This isn't necessarily a difficult text for everyone in the world, but this is a difficult text for this particular setting. Um, So uh, this is from Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17. This is what's known as uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, which has some very close ties to Sermon on the Mount, which many of us have heard of. 
in Matthew's gospel. So listen to this, starting in uh, verse 17. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like, or the, the text will be on the screen up here. It says, he, that's Jesus, went down with them and stood on a level place, or a plain. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how they treated their ancestors. That is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Now, let's just pause there. When we read things like that, and when we read things very similar to that in the Sermon on the Mount, it's easy to smile and nod and say, Amen. Amen to that. Go, God. Go, poor people. I'm with you, weeping people. I receive that. I like that. I would like that on a coffee mug. Um, or, you know, if you're really cool, I want that in a tattoo somehow, you know? <laughs> Sometimes we even read the bit about blessed are you when people hate you, and we imagine ourselves as the hated people because... Um, Starbucks isn't using the red cups anymore on Christmas. <laughs> and that's Christian persecution. Or because Christian films mostly get panned by the critics. And we say it's because they're Christian, not because most of them are poorly made. Or being required to discriminate, not to discriminate in who you make a wedding cake for. That's not persecution. That may be a moral quandary. That may be really difficult trying to figure out how to be a Christian business owner and how to navigate that, for sure. But that's not persecution. That would be an insult to people who have, honest to God, faced the threat of death for their faith. But when we read things like that, my point is we do resonate we do resonate. We say, yes, I, I get that. I'm on board with that. That's, that sounds like Jesus. We can applaud that. But then in the Sermon on the Plain, unlike the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes this really, really sharp turn. Just, you know, record scratch kind of turn. And goes in a completely different direction. Listen to this starting in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. <coughs> Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And I read that and I say, oh man. Because number one, 
I'm among the richest people on earth. And so are you, almost for sure. If you have a household income of $32,000 a year, you're in the top 1% wealthiest people on the planet. I'm not assuming that applies to everybody, but I'm standing in Maple Grove, so I'm guessing that's most of us. Number two, I'm very well fed. I have, um, I don't think I've ever involuntarily gone without food. Ever. I was thinking about that the other night. Have I ever involuntarily gone without food? I don't think I have. In fact, my guess is that most of us in the room are so well-fed that we're actually trying to figure out how to be less well-fed because we're too well-fed. Sometimes I, I wonder, I, I see Eric at uh, Lifetime all the time at the gym, and I, I can't help but wonder sometimes how some of my friends in Sierra Leone and Azerbaijan and Haiti and the Dominican, people I've just met here and there, how they would think about the fact that I spend hours every week running and biking and swimming and lifting heavy things voluntarily. Uh, like I'm not being paid to do that. In fact, I pay to do that in order to counteract the fact that I eat too much food. That would be a mind-blowing reality to so many people around the world. Number three, I laugh a lot. I, I would guess most of us do. Americans are by far the most entertained population on earth. We have so few real, true, desperate worries in our lives. I mean, the, the, the phrase, first world problems, that's a, that's a, that was coined for a reason. You know, most of the things, not all of the things, but most of the things we get stressed out about are, boy, pretty, pretty insignificant things comparatively. And so we have this emotional freedom to just be able to turn on things almost whenever we want that make us laugh and make us entertained. And then number four, most people speak pretty well of me. Not everyone. My brand of humor isn't everyone's. My, my vocalness about political stuff on Facebook <laughs> isn't everyone's cup of tea. I, I get that. But most people would say, yeah, Brian McQuite, he's a good dude. Which is probably what most people say about you as well. Yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Tell me if I'm wrong. Raise your hand if you're generally a person that people don't like. Okay, I was going to just affirm you if you were that person. So I, I like you. I don't know you, but I like you. And of course, on the flip side, I, I'm not poor. I'm guessing that most of us by global comparison aren't. I'm not hungry. I don't weep a whole lot, generally speaking. And people don't hate me, exclude me, insult me, or reject my name as evil. So I won't speak for you. I'll just speak for myself. But I'm, just my own personal scorecard, I'm 0 for 4 on the blessings and I'm four for four on the woes, on, on the curses in this passage. So what do you do with that? But before we quite go there, I just want to back up for a second and talk about why Jesus says this, how this fits into what he's doing. Because 
I know we all like it a lot more when Jesus just, like, Jesus, could, could you just stick to the love stuff and could you just stick to the dying for your sins stuff and could you just, spiritual things, and I'm, because I'm on board with that. When you take these sharp turns and, like, talk into my face, ugh, I don't know what to do with it. So let's just, I want to talk a little bit about why he goes here, okay? Uh, hopefully, as you've been going through the Gospel of Luke, you've seen that there is this theme that comes up again and again of reversal, of things being turned upside down. Uh, Jesus talks about the first becoming last and the last becoming first, the the proud being brought low and the humble being exalted, and and God's favor and presence being not with the proud and the rich and the powerful, who are usually the ones who are have all of the favor, but with the poor and the outcasts and the sinners and the sick and the minorities and the women. We start hearing that theme in the very first chapter during Mary's song, the Magnificat, where she sings, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And then that theme continues all throughout Luke's book. The first shall be last, the last shall be first, the proud will be brought low, the humble will be exalted. Theologians call that the great reversal. The great reversal theme in Luke. Many have characterized Jesus' kingdom as an upside-down kingdom. An upside-down kingdom. And it's not hard to see why. Because every other kingdom that I know of that has ever existed in human history has had the same basic set of rules. Right? They all had the same kind of core values, the same basic structure. You have, first of all, a king who is always powerful, who, who builds on his power, who capitalizes on power, who seeks to consolidate power. Okay? And then you have the subjects of the king who are subservient to the king, who, who, who serve and help the king in his consolidation of power, who um, obey the king, who belong to the king. And then you have the kingdom itself, which has walls usually and boundaries and, and a sharply delineated inside and outside and insiders and outsiders. And it's guarded in order to keep others out. And you have the force of the kingdom. Every kingdom has a force, uh, a military or a garrison that goes out and does conquest and tries to expand the kingdom and bring more people into the kingdom by force and guard the kingdom from force, from violence, using violence. That's the way kingdoms work. Like that's just the rules of a kingdom. That's how every kingdom, every empire, every nation has worked. One of the rare exceptions actually has been, this is just a side note, uh, one of the rare exceptions has been the United States over the, at least for the first 200 years or so of its existence. The United States historically has never really fit well into the category of kingdom or into the category of empire because historically it had rejected an overly powerful executive branch its power derived not from the king, but from the people. Um, its boundaries were defined, but also open. Give me your tired, give me your poor. And its military was called upon mostly for defense and for humanitarian intervention. And now it seems even the United States is starting to go the way of the empire. And this is not a, really a political statement. But it's starting to go, this very powerful executive 
branch that issues <laughs> decrees and laws on its own authority. We call that executive orders in our country. A populace with dwindling power, tightly controlled and police boundaries, and a global military that never really fully comes home. It's the way kingdoms work. It's the way that you do it. In fact, it's the way that even Israel expected their coming king to work. I don't know if you know this, but nobody expected a king to look anything like Jesus. There was not this idea in ancient Israel throughout the Old Testament that when Messiah came, when the Messiah king came, it would look anything like what Jesus ended up looking like. It's why he was rejected. They had a very specific expectation of what the Messiah King would be. He would be a powerful political figure. He would bring with him massive, a massive and unstoppable military. He would destroy the foreign influence of the Roman Empire and their oppression. And he would rule from the holy city forever. He would literally make Israel great again. That was the plan. That's what everyone expected as they read their Old Testament. And then comes along this guy, this poor carpenter from a backwater hick town called Nazareth, which was so ill-respected that even when Jesus came on the scene, people said things like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And started saying and doing things that made you think that he thought he was the Messiah. The king coming. And he didn't have power, at least not the kind you'd expect a king to have. Rather than growing his power and consolidating his power, he emptied himself of power. As the Apostle Paul says, he set aside his crown. What kind of king sets aside his crown? Comes on the scene for his inauguration and sets aside his crown. It's not how it works. He didn't think of his people as subjects, as his servants. In fact, he became their servant. He washed their feet. He touched their leprous skin. He served them food. He honored them and lifted them up. He preached a kingdom that really wasn't into walls and boundaries. It embraced and accepted anyone. Jesus famously expanded the definition of neighbor from a person who is close to you who you like to anybody who happens to be around you, particularly those who have a need. He just changed the definition of neighbor. So he preached this kingdom that wasn't into walls and boundaries. He said, if you're from Jerusalem, come. If you're from Rome, come. If you're a Jew, come. If you're a Gentile, come. If you're married, come. If you've been divorced five times and the husband that you're now living with, the, person, the man that you're now living with isn't your husband, come. If you're sick, come. If you're poor, come. If you're a man, woman, or even if you're a child, come. If you're addicted to booze, or food, or work, or prescription pain meds, or all of those, come. If you're a Republican, a Democrat, 
a libertarian, green, constitution, tea party, independent, come. He welcomed everyone who was willing to be welcomed. If you are straight, if you are gay, if you are trans, if you are bi, if you are anything in between, come. Just come. The only boundaries in this kingdom were the ones that people drew for themselves. People who said, I refuse to eat with. That was the only boundaries. And Jesus wasn't drawing them. And this king had no plans to expand or protect his kingdom by force. Instead, he planned to expand it by love, by charity, by giving, by proclamation of good news of great joy for all people that a good king had come, that he had come preaching peace and justice, that he would die for his people to rescue them from their sin and rise again to give them new life. This was a bizarre king. Kings don't die for their people. That's not how it works. It's not the rules. It was absolutely an upside-down kingdom. And the vision of this upside-down kingdom is the context for this strange teaching that he does here in Luke chapter 6, where he says that the blessings of God come to the poor, to the hungry, to the weeping, to the rejected, and the woes of God come to the rich, to the well-fed, to the entertained and the well-respected. So, here's me, middle-class, middle-aged, suburban white guy, trying to figure out what to do with this. And not all of you are middle-class, middle-aged, suburban white guy, but young, hip, well-liked 20-something, or... um, golfing, cabin-going retiree, or uh, well-fed, well-entertained, well-respected person. What do you do with this? What do you do with the real Jesus who doesn't fit neatly onto coffee mugs and says things like this? (laughs) My answer is I don't really know for sure. (laughs) So, Selah, let's take the offering and pray. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, I was thinking about this, and I, I, I have three ideas, okay? I have three just, these, these are not, I, I don't want you to hear what I'm going to say next as, um, so here's what you do, okay? I want you to hear this as, this is me thinking out loud about what, what I'm going to do with this, and inviting you to think about, maybe this is the thing to do too. Um, so three places where we might consider starting if we would be people who follow Jesus and participate in his upside-down kingdom. Okay. Number one, and the first, these first two are, are so simple, because, mostly because I needed a place to start. Like I, needed to, I needed some actionable item that I could take in my own life with this text. So the first one, maybe let's just not turn the page so fast. The reason I started this morning by sharing that tweet is because that tweet, man, it just, it sat me down. It demanded my attention. I don't know why. Maybe that had no impression on anybody else, but it, it, it demanded my attention. And it wasn't even immediately clear to me what I was supposed to do with it. It just made me sit there and think. And maybe that's the place to start 
with Luke chapter 6, verses 17 and 26. This is not the place we love to um, look over a, a mountain vista on vacation and soak in this text. That's not the text, right? It's so easy to turn the page so fast because it's so easy to read this text and it's obviously at odds with how most of us exist. And so it's hard to conceive of what God would want us to do with it. Like, God, does God really not want me to work my job and make money? Does God not want me to have a house? Does God not want me to eat? Does God not want me to laugh? Am I supposed to be glum all the time? Am I not supposed to be well-liked? Like, should I try to be the guy that no one likes to be around? That doesn't seem to make much sense to me. So we kind of read it, and we shrug our shoulders and, and turn the page and get on to the stuff about loving our enemies, which is the next text, one that we can all get on board with. But maybe let's just not turn the page so fast. Maybe let's just sit with this text in our laps and converse with it and talk with God about this text and just say, just, just wait, just, just wait to see what he wants to say to us about this. Let's put this text on like a pair of glasses and look at the world around us honestly. <clears throat> so that's my very simple first idea. Let's just maybe not turn the page quite so fast. Second idea. Maybe... I don't know what's going on in your life, so that's why I say maybe. But maybe we should confess and repent. Just like that tweet, I want to let these words grab me by the shirt collar. Have you ever had someone grab you by the shirt collar? Uh, a high school football coach would grab us by the collar of the shoulder pads. Never worn a pair of shoulder pads. They have this like, lip in front. Super easy for coaches to grab onto, intentionally, I think. And he would grab us by the shoulder pad so that you couldn't move away, and then he'd put his face right up against our helmet so you couldn't really look away. <laughs> and he wasn't even really a yeller. He just would grab our shoulder pads and look into our helmet and say, if you don't make that block, I was a tight end in high school, if you don't if you don't seal the edge and put a hit on that outside linebacker, he will kill our running back, and then I will kill you. Is kind of how it went. Right? <laughs> that's, that's how this text, I think, is supposed to engage with us. Right? It's supposed to just grasp us, grab us, not yell at us, but it should grab us by the collar and speak directly into our faces with a seriousness that doesn't let us look away. And when we do that, when that happens, I think it's going to have an effect on us. When we let it stare into our face and say, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I think as we allow the force of those words to land on us, it will eventually drive us to our knees to at the very least confess the ways we have leaned into 
leaned into our money, leaned into our comforts, leaned into our amusements, and leaned into respectability as our security, as our purpose, as the reasons that we live and strive and work, rather than leaning away from those things and into the upside-down kingdom. That's, that's, I'm not even asking anybody this morning to sell their house. If you are going to sell your house, I'm a realtor. But if, I'm not asking um, anyone to sell their house or to move to China or, or to give it all away. I'm not asking that. I'm just saying maybe we should, maybe we've leaned a little too far toward those things and it's time to let this text speak to us and help us to lean away from those things and into the kingdom. Here's my last idea. And this is going to be the harder one for, for me and maybe for everyone. Maybe we should rethink which character we are in this text. Maybe we should stop thinking of ourselves as the blessed ones and stand closer to those who stand closer to God's blessing. I'll say that again. Maybe we should stop thinking of ourselves as the blessed ones just because we're Christians and stand closer to those who stand closer to God's blessing. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So here are the questions that come to my mind when I think through that. How close am I standing to the poor and hungry? How close do I stand to them in my free time? How close do I stand to them in my prayer life? How close do I stand to them in my spending, in my giving, in my church budget? How close do I stand to them in my politics? Do my political convictions advocate for and side with the people Jesus advocated for and sided with? Or do I just make my stand on moral issues? Do we stand close to those who are weeping, to those whom life has beaten down? You know, when, it, when we think about our neighborhoods, I'm sure Eric has talked about this in the past few weeks, but when I think about my neighborhood, I've been in my neighborhood four years now, four years of very intentional engagement in my neighborhood with people that, in not all cases, I'd really naturally click with. And now, just now, after three, four years, you're starting to hear the stuff. You're starting to hear the real stuff. You're starting to hear the, you're starting to hear about the widow and the divorcee and the prescription drug addicted and the alcoholics and all this stuff that's there that you don't see when you just say hi at the mailbox. So am I standing with those people? Am I standing with the divorcee? Or are we just scoffing at her because they couldn't figure out how to make marriage work? And I, mean, I wouldn't want to be married to her either. That's the way our heart goes sometimes, I think. 
the blessing of God flows toward these people. God stands with these people. Maybe we should stand with them too. Do we stand with those who are excluded, those who are marginalized, those who are mocked and oppressed and mistreated? Do we stand with minorities? Do we stand with the victims of systemic racism? Or do we just tell them to work harder and obey the law and they'll be fine? Which has never been the case. The blessing of God flows toward these people. God stands with these people. Maybe we should stand with them too. So, those are my ideas I'd like us to consider. If those don't find a landing place in your mind and your heart, that's okay. I'm thinking out loud here about how this text is supposed to confront middle-aged suburban white guy. And I want you to think about how it should confront you as well. So, Let's not turn the page so fast because we don't know what to do with these words. Let's listen intently to it. Let's confess and repent for the ways that we've leaned into the things on which God declares woes. And let's stand with those who stand in the blessing of God. So Father, may we be the people of the upside down kingdom.